morning. My name is Daniel Morgan. I am one of the executive pastors here at Resurrection Church. Uh, welcome back to church. Um, it's been a been an interesting week or two. Uh, COVID and the flu both have run rampant through our staff and our church. We spent most of the week doing all of our meetings remotely as people begin to quarantine at home and get positive tests. And, you know, I told someone earlier uh, today, uh, we're kind of all done with COVID, but COVID seems like it's not done with us. Uh, I wish it was. Um, we're, we're here, you know, we've planned Vision Sunday, uh, gosh, probably two months back. We, we had set this date for Vision Sunday. We wanted to at least annually take a look at the vision of Resurrection Church, which is kind of the direction of where the church is going. Now, a couple things. The Bible would say that where there is no vision, the people perish. The mission of the church is unchanging. The mission of the church, the mission of all churches that believe scripture, that believe in Jesus is unchanging. That is to go out and to make disciples of all of the earth, to share the gospel and to teach them everything that Jesus taught them. So it's our job to reach out into a dark culture, into a dark world, being salt into the earth, being a light in the dark. That is the mission. That's always going to be the mission. That's that's never going to change. But the vision, the mile markers, the the smaller, shorter term things, those begin to change. And so it's good to each year or so take a look at where the church is at and where the church is going. And we've been working on that for a while. About three, three and a half weeks ago, um, just through prayer, God had really kind of given me the passage that uh, I I really felt like we needed to talk through and preach through and and really was representative of some of the things that are happening in the life of our church and where we're headed. And just in the process of praying through that and studying and preparing for the message, uh, I began to just kind of brought out for me a lot of feelings of uh, insecurity and inadequacy. And and just by the end of uh, preparing for it, I think one of the wonderful things that happens as you begin to realize how inadequate you are for the task is it begins to breed in you this dependency on God that if God doesn't get it done, it's surely not going to be me getting it done. And that, that was really good. But I still was kind of wrestling with that and some criticism. And I, had a, I ended up having to get a call from a, a really good friend of mine, Russ. Most of you guys know Russ. Some of you guys know Russ. And, and Russ and I were talking. And my intention was actually to encourage him. And by the end of it, it was kind of a counseling session where he really just encouraged me, which is sometimes, sometimes the way that goes. And I was, I was really encouraged. And then last night, um, I got just a phenomenal phone call. And, and let me, I should explain this. Um, we're going to go on a lot of rabbit trails today, and I'm going to talk long because there's like, we don't even have a band, there's like three people. Uh, we'll know we've gone too long if they bring your kids back in from Sunday school and just release them into the wild. Then it'll be time to break. Okay, so uh, I, I, let me submit to you that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you would call yourself a Christian, uh, if you understand the gospel and are following Jesus, then, then, then at the center of this life with Jesus is this idea that somehow, some way, you and I, have to uh, get past our emotions and learn what it looks like to continually, through spiritual disciplines, stir up our affection for Jesus because we can't always live on this emotional high. Did you know what I mean by an emotional high? How many people have been to church camp? Four of you? Heathens. Okay. You go to church camp or you go to men's retreat or you go to this cool conference, right? And you get on a spiritual high where it's like everything, I mean, God's gonna, the kingdom's coming and I'm doing work and I'm part of the royal priesthood and we're gonna charge the gates to hell with this squirt gun. And like, I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're pumped and then you drive back to Bakersfield and, and the air's kind of thick, all right? And like in Bakersfield, we don't trust air unless you can see it. And you go back to work and you come down off that emotional high, and then we end up in, in, in real life. And in the so, so, but you and I can't be ruled by our emotions. Our, our, our spiritual progress and the maturation, the way God's transforming us doesn't get to change just because our, you know, our, our, our emotions are down or, or work's tough or life's hard, because they are. We, as we mature in Christ, have to understand through spiritual discipline what it looks like to stir up these affections, stir up this passion in Jesus Christ so that, that he can continue to do this transformative work inside of us. Now, we do that together, right? We, we corporately get together and we do that so that we can re-gospel each other, we can remind each other what the gospel is, we can encourage one another, we can show honor to one another, we can love one another, we can bear with one another sometimes. But... but we have to stir up our affection. And I, I think that's at the center of every Christian's understanding of what it looks like to pursue Jesus is understand what spiritual disciplines are necessary through your quiet time, through scripture, through preaching, through there are a lot of things. And they're not always the same for everybody, but one of mine that I identified years ago just in, in reflection was getting to hear 
people's personal testimonies about how God is doing miraculous things on their behalf. And it's even better if it's happening like right then, like I, not, not 10 years ago. I don't wanna know what God did with you 20 years ago. I mean, that's cool and everything, but like right now, when you begin to explain how God is working in the supernatural fashion in your life and doing things that he's, he's reconciling things, he's fixing things, he's doing what God does, which is restoring broken things. Like it just stirs up my affection for Jesus. So last night I get a phone call. I'm on the couch with the family and it's my neighbor who doesn't even live in town anymore. He, uh, it was my neighbor from like nine or 10 years ago and he, he calls me and I missed it and I thought, oh, I wonder what he wanted and I call him back. He lives down south and he said, Daniel, I just, I needed to call you to let you know that, that God has restored and reconciled my marriage. And, and man, this, the, that family went through just devastation and destruction and substance abuse and, and, and jail time and just, you name it, the dysfunction and despair in that family looked like it was irreconcilable. And he's, he just begins to explain to me how God has knitted their family back together and he's put his marriage back together and, and, and the four kids that they're raising, that they're all in the same home again. And, and, and he's just, he's walking through what God's doing and I'm just like, just like, man, this is phenomenal. You don't, under, you don't understand the implications generationally for your children and their children of what it's gonna look like that God has, has reconciled this and put your family back in. I'm, I'm just speaking in him, I'm talking to him. He goes, I know, I know, that's why I called you. I'm sitting on this balcony of this condo that, that this company got for us. We have a job and everything. And I'm, and I'm looking out at the ocean and I'm like, God, I'm so thankful. And, and he's like, who am I thankful for? And he's like, I'm thankful for my neighbor, Daniel, who prayed for me and invited me over and chased me down for 10 years and I had to call you. And I just broke into tears because that's the mission, guys. That the, the, the mission is we're gonna, we're gonna toil and work and fight and love and be hurt and bear with one another for the opportunity to see God move. To see God move. Let me talk about, before I talk about where we're going, let me talk about what we've accomplished in 2021 as a church. As a church in 2021, we've done a lot of things. I actually was sitting down, just kind of writing through it and didn't realize like we, we've sort of been dominated by the events and circumstances of the season and, and sometimes lose sight of the accomplishments of God in the last year. We rewrote an ownership class. Uh, about 50 people went through that on a Sunday night. Uh, went through a Bible study where we had rewritten our ownership class. Um, we did that in 2021. We, we re-architected our staff and our ministries to be more collaborative. We do a lot of team meetings now. We build a lot of things from a collaborative approach. Um, we just published, and you're gonna see this after the service, our first revision of a church handbook. I'll talk about that a little bit more. We got that done. Uh, we have uh, redone our communication methods. We are really working on communicating with you. In fact, you probably get so much communication from us, you're a little tired of us by now. We're kind of like the clingy girlfriend, it's okay. We've changed our service elements of how we architect our services um, because we want to continue to encourage you more and um, make sure that we're setting the right tone of a gospel culture inside our corporate services. We, we've navigated uh, COVID and we're still navigating COVID. We've navigated the loss of a senior pastor. We've added a starting point class to give you a first step if you're a guest here. In fact, we're doing one, we do a monthly, we're doing one after the service. We've written uh, via Vance Furtado, one of our pastors, uh, we've written the first of our essentials classes, which is content that we're producing for inside our community groups. I don't know what 2021 was like for you personally, if you had a lot of W's or you had a lot of L's, but God has uh, given me a renewed sense of calling and purpose in 2021. He's shown me the amount of discipline and personal transformation that's gonna take for me if I wanna lead effectively and well. And God has spent a lot of time in 2021 teaching me how to be gentle, uh, teaching me how to be gentle. Now, what are we doing right now? Right now, we are learning how to love one another instead of simply tolerating one another. It's a big thing, right? We were okay at tolerating one another. We were really stinky at loving one another and we're working on it. We're learning how to listen both to God and to each other. We have changed right now our worship music and services. So we are very cross-generational in the song choice and selection. In fact, when you read our handbook today, we talk a lot about our strategy and methodology for how we choose songs and how we architect our worship services. Um, we, we do not do segregational worship. We don't put our youth off into something else on Sunday mornings and tell them you go over there and you're a second class citizen and you have a traditional service and you have a modern service and you have a really, really modern service. Uh, we believe we're gonna learn how to do this together or not at all. 
We have a rotation of our pastoral staff and our preachers. In the last two and a half months, you have heard preaching pastors in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 60s, and in their 70s. How's that for cross-generational? We missed the 50s. We're working on it, okay? But you had a lot of decades represented there from the pulpit. We've prioritized keeping our ministries simple and streamlined. Find your few, find a place to serve, give, repeat, and do it again. Find your few. You're gonna hear that a lot. We send the entire church a weekly email and a video from leadership in order to communicate with you more effectively. Now, let's talk about where we're going. And to talk about where we're going, we're gonna be in your favorite book of the Bible, Numbers. Right? Nobody reads that? Okay, fine. Well, then it'll be good. We're gonna go to Numbers 13. Uh, Let me give you a preface for where we're gonna be. I'll give you the background. Uh, The Israelites, God's nation, the people that he chose, uh, have actually been in slavery for about 450 years, roughly, in Egypt. And so now we're talking about generational slavery, right? Most of the people we're talking about, in fact, all the people we're talking about were born in slavery. Their fathers were born in slavery. All they've known is a life of slavery. And in, in the preceding chapters in Exodus and in Numbers, God decides to free them. He sends Moses into Pharaoh. We remember at least some of the VeggieTale stories, right? Okay. Uh, So now the people have come out. It's been about two years since they've been out of Egypt. They're now uh, at the banks of the Jordan River, ready to cross over into the promised land, having spent their whole life in slavery and two years in the wilderness. They're now at the banks. They're looking at the promised land. We're going to pick up right here because God tells them to send some spies out to spy out the land and the promised land. That's what we're going to pick up in Numbers 13, verses 25 through 33. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people, Caleb's one of the spies, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height, they're giants. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seemed to them. Now, a couple things are really interesting about this passage. For uh, the exodus from Egypt and for the two years as they went all around the wilderness, God never sent spies out ahead of them the whole time. He just led them. But now all of a sudden, when they're ready to cross over the Jordan and go into the promised land to receive the promise that God gave to Abraham 650 years earlier, he says, no, go ahead and send some spies out. So why would God send spies out now when he hasn't done that for two years, all the time that he's led them? He could have just led them right across the river. They could have gone and taken it over. I think there's, there's two reasons that God does this. Number one, I think that God wants, them to, God wants the people to see both the challenges and the opportunity. And you see that both in verses 27 and 28, okay? So in verse 27, you see this. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now, you gotta remember, the Israelites are from Egypt. They're born in Egypt. They've lived in Egypt in slavery. They've never seen anything else. They've lived in the desert their whole life, and then they spent two years wandering the desert. This is all they've seen. And all of a sudden, they walk into this land, and it's fertile. Things grow there like they've never seen. It... it, It's almost, except for the spies, it's unimaginable. They had to bring back evidence of how good it is because you wouldn't believe me if you couldn't actually put your your hands on the figs, if you couldn't see the grapes, you wouldn't even believe how good this is. It's that good. That's the promise of God. That's the promise of why they were let out of Egypt. It's right there in front of them. And then you get to verse 28 
however. Now, however is just a longer word for but. And I gotta be honest, buts get us in a lot of trouble. This, this land is great, but, but. Here's the opposition. Here's the obstacle. Here's the enemy. Here's the challenges. It's there, but we're gonna have to go to war. It's there, but there's gonna be a battle. It's there, but there's actually conflict involved in receiving and holding on to the promise of God. And here, the problem for the, for the Israelites is they've spent all this time running from the conflict. They didn't fight Pharaoh, they ran from him. They ran through the Red Sea, they ran through the wilderness. They've, they haven't had to fight yet. And now all of a sudden, God's promises are there on the other side of the river, but it's gonna require conflict. They're gonna have to go into war. They're gonna have to go into battle. Now, remember that this people, the Israelites, they have already seen so much about God. They, they, this is two years into this. So in this time, they would have uh, experienced the 10 plagues in Egypt, all miracles that they watched with their own eyes, culminating in God striking down the firstborn of every Egyptian, splitting open the Red Sea, leading them across, crushing Pharaoh's army, leading them around the wilderness with a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of cloud at night, establishing a tent of meeting in which Moses would go to meet with God and he would come out and his face was glowing. They'd be like, bro, whoa, cover your face. It's too much. Literally the presence of God providing for them food falling from the sky. Okay. This is there. One theologian said that no people in the history of the Bible outside of maybe Jesus disciples ever experienced this much physical presence of God around them. God has demonstrated all of these things to them for more than two years now. They already know about God's promises that was passed down from Abraham. They used to, they would pass these down as stories generation to generation. They already know about God's promises. They know God's promises are across the river. They already know about God's presence. They see it every day and every night in the, falling from the sky. They know about God's promises. They know about God's presence. They know about God's power. They've watched him defeat Pharaoh's army. And they know about God's past. They know about these things. And here's the choice. The choice as they stand at the riverbank of the Jordan is to seize the opportunity which will require complete and utter dependence on God or be overwhelmed by the presence of the challenge and reject God's gift. Now, ultimately, when you reject God's gift, you are rejecting God. And let's not, you and I, downplay what we do when we reject God's gifts, his leadership, his vision in our life as well. T 10 of the 12 spies that are sent out come back and they're overwhelmed. If you read verse 28, they're overwhelmed by the obstacles. And, and the interesting thing about it is that they're not wrong. They're just really analytical, realistic people. Like I relate well, they're probably great accountants, right? They like spreadsheets. On one end, they look over here and they say there's, there's mighty walled fortresses with, with men trained up in, in military and, and ready for battle and prepared. And on the other end, I have a million slaves who have no weapons, no armor, no training. You know what they're good at? Making bricks, doing laundry, having babies. They're just being realistic. They're just being, they've done the uh, risk assessment. Anyone ever heard of that word? A risk assessment and it ain't looking good. I, I feel like this all the time. See, I would love to be able to tell you that I, I relate more to Caleb and Joshua, but, but in reality, if I'm being really honest, I do this to God all the time. I look at my circumstances. I, I, I feel underqualified. Uh, I, I feel like I'm, I'm not prepared for what God has. I look at the, the obstacles around and the challenges. And, and when I look at those things, I just think, oh man, I don't, I don't think this is gonna, I don't think it's gonna turn out real well. Collectively, I feel like if, if I'm taking an aggregate of our church, we feel like this all the time. We look at our church and we, we look at where we don't have the resources, or we don't have the volunteers, or maybe we don't have the qualifications, or we don't, and we just, we, we have this, tendency to focus on the obstacle instead of on the provider who overcomes obstacles. 
And it's not enough for some of the Israelites, a few minority of the Israelites, to be ready to trust in God and cross the river. They all have to be ready to do it. We're going to see that in the story in a second. It's not enough enough resurrection church for there to be a, a vision of moving forward to grasp hold of the promise of God in our church by some elders or, or, or some staff members or by some pastoral staff. It's going to have to collectively be the body of Christ, shoulder to shoulder, crossing the river, knowing that we're walking into a battle before we're going to be able to do it. One scholar wrote this about the 10 spies. He said, uh, there were four major regions of land in the promised land, and each of them was occupied by a different powerful enemy. And it wasn't the facts of the matter that these spies disagreed on. That wasn't actually the problem at all. The problem was that their perception of claiming the promised land was that it was going to be conflict-free. That what they wanted was that the problem was there was no unoccupied land that they could just walk over the river and occupy themselves comfortably. It was going to involve conflict. It was going to involve obstacles. That was going to suddenly change everything. And so, so what happens is... Uh, Just know this, God's promises, God's goodness is not absent of conflict. The other side of the river had both, God's promises and a battle. God's promises and a battle. Verse 14 says this, then all the congregation raised a loud cry when they heard this. Now, where did they hear this from? They heard this from the 10 spies. What did the 10 spies do? They went and exaggerated the problem. They went from, it's a great land, but there's obstacles, to, no, 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 no. this is, they give a bad report of the land. No, this is a land that devours its inhabitants, meaning it, it's not fertile. It's not overflowing with milk and honey. No, no, they changed the report and exaggerated the problem out of fear, and then they took and influenced the congregation with that. Let me just say this about your life. There are people that you've given access into your life, not necessarily with the title leader, but they are people that influence you. They speak into your life, and when someone speaks into your life and you listen to them, they are a leader in your life, whether you call them that or not. Be very careful who you allow influence in your life. Are they pointing you at the obstacles or are they pointing you at the Father? It's a big difference, and it will matter, and it mattered here. The congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? To slavery. Can, can we just go back to the desert and be slaves instead of crossing the river and putting our arms around God's promises in our life? That's what they're saying. God spent, I mean, just, you think about this drama for just a minute. God spent 650 years so that he could bring his people to the brink of the promised land, show it to them, and then murder them all? I, I know, when, because we can read the end of the story, and we read this, and we think, man, they're dumb. This guy is so dumb. But man, I do this. I do this. I see situations where God's going to have to be miraculous or else I'm going to be in real trouble and I begin to invent and write stories that actually change the character of God because in fear and in doubt, I don't know if God's going to show up and if he's going to work things out for his good, for his glory and for my good and I begin to wonder whether or not it's going to work out and I begin to look over my shoulder at yesteryear and think, man, if I could just go back. Verse four, and they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, I'm just gonna leave this for you right here. We're not gonna investigate it a lot. I know that we live in a democratic nation, but the track record of voting in the Bible is really bad. They just voted to get a new leader to go back into slavery when the promised land has crossed the river. So I want you to just keep that. Next time you're like, we should vote on something. I'm gonna point you back here, okay. <clears throat> Verse five. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, by the way, this is one of my favorite parts in the Old Testament, ready? 
The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread to us. That Hebrew word is lehem, food, bread, white bread, toast. I don't care what you put there. They're nothing. We're going to eat them alive. They are lehem for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Do not fear them. Every time I read that story, every time I read that declaration from Joshua and Caleb, every time my hair stands up on my forearm, you know, you guys who watch The Lion King? When he's like, Mufasa, Every time, they're bred to us. We will devour them. I, 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 I want to live my life in a space like Caleb and Joshua every day. I want to. I wish I, I, wish I was. Where, where I'm so far extended out into it in faith, following God, that either God is going to look miraculous or I'm going to look like an idiot. That space not playing it safe like the 10 spies. And that's the goal, I think, as a Christ follower, to be sensitive to the work of the Spirit and obedient to God, to realize where he's leading in his prompting and to chase after him and to not worry about whether or not in human terms it can get done. To pursue God, to love God, to be so sensitive to the Spirit, we chase after him. No matter where he goes, we follow. Verse 10, then all the congregation, this is where it takes a turn for the worse, and all the congregations set to stone them with stones. Now, I appreciate that when you guys don't like a sermon, just send me an email. That's significantly better than this. But the glory of God appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Okay. They're so incensed, they're so fearful that they're ready to kill Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua, elect a new leader, and go back to slavery. And, and, and at this point in the story, as you read on, God is kind of done. God is like, yo, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to pick a new nation. Like these guys can't put any faith in me. I've displayed my glory and my power and my goodness and my faithfulness and my promises and my provision now for two years in the wilderness. And this is the response. I'm going to start over. I'm going to pick a new, new people. And Moses kind of talks God out of it. And, and, and God ends up compromising and sending them out into the wilderness for 40 years, except that he kills off everybody under the age of 20. He says, if you're over the age of 20, you're not going to see the promised land. Now, I, let me just say a couple things about that. The first is this. The first is this. The 10 spies do what many of us do when faced with uncertainty and change. They exaggerate the problems, they dismiss the potential, and they stir up dissension. They exaggerate the problems, they dismiss the potential, and they stir up dissension. Because by the next morning, they've taken this from a report of obstacles to a full-on riot. People are frothing at the mouth. And, and if I'm honest, we do this. We're faced with change. We're faced with uncertainty. We're faced with trials and tribulations in our life. It looks bad from human perspective. We lack the faith to move forward. And instead, we tend to exaggerate the problem, dismiss God's potential, and stir up dissension. Just make a mess out of things. Rejecting God's promised land, in this case, is also rejecting God. When they reject Moses, they're rejecting God. They're saying, no thanks. Yeah, we see those promises. We're going to take Pharaoh and slavery over you, God. Now, there's just one thing I want to talk about. God's willing to kill off everybody over the age of 20. We have a distinctive in our church, which is about pouring into and raising up the next generation. And one of our passionate pleas is that each of us has an opportunity to pour into the generation that's coming after us the wisdom that God is working out in us. Now, let me just, let me just tell you the difference. 
That wisdom that pleases God is a wisdom that has me sharing with another generation how through hard circumstances and through fear and through, through tough times, God provided. God was sovereign. God was good. The moment I'm trying to share wisdom and it doesn't involve me pointing at God and sharing and teaching that with the next generation, I, I'm teaching foolishness. And God will just reject it and start over and pick somebody else. So God sends them all out to the wilderness for 40 years and brings them back to the river in Joshua 3, which we're going to pick up in just a minute. Three things from this story that I want you to see, and then I, I really want to work in this space in Joshua 3, because I think this is where we find ourselves at a church, uh, as a church in, in, in this chapter of uh, Joshua. But, but just this, three big takeaways from this story if you're, you're taking notes. Number one, don't be caught looking back at Egypt when the promised land is literally right in front of you. Don't be caught looking back at Egypt when the promised land is literally right in front of you. Now, I'll just admit that over the course of the last four or five years, I've done this a lot. It's been a difficult season of time as we've, we've been faced with things that God has led us to. We've been obedient, trying to move toward it, but then we've looked at it and realized that, man, based on human terms, this isn't gonna work, and I've caught myself looking back over my shoulder and going, man, if I could just go re recreate this, this situation that I had at a past church and a past ministry at a past time, that if I could just recreate that, everything would be fixed. And you ever noticed that when, you, when in your mind you begin to recreate something that is the glory years, they're always a little better than they really were. You ever, you ever notice how like in your mind there was no real dysfunction, there was no real problem, everything was like really perfect, it was almost heaven, I don't know how it ends up that way. And, I, and I'll find myself doing that, looking back over my shoulder going, boy, boy, five years ago was just so perfect. And then if I was really honest and I really sat down and thought about it, I'd go, you know, it was actually pretty dysfunctional. Don't be caught looking back at Egypt when the promised land is literally right in front of you. Fear and uncertainty and, and a dependence on human competency will lead you to look at Egypt, to look at Pharaoh, to look at slavery and think, yeah, I want to go back to that when God's promises are on the other side of the river. Point two, don't allow the very promise of God to be overshadowed by the challenges of the fight. The path forward is tough. We're in for a fight. There's a reason the Bible consistently talks about you and I needing to be ready for battles, for war, talks about us being soldiers, talks about us having uh, God's spiritual armor. There, there's a, the reason for that is this life is not without trouble. If someone's selling you that life with Christ is just this sort of peachy uh, thing with no problems and no trials and it's not difficult and you're going to be a millionaire, just uh, sign on the dotted line here and give me some money, they are selling you down the river. The prosperity gospel that has overtaken many of evangelical camps over the last few years is poppycock. That's the strongest word I'm allowed to use from the pulpit. Poppycock. Jesus' disciples died martyrs' deaths. Most of them lived in poverty. And they did it willingly for the kingdom. The path forward is tough. It's not absent of conflict. We're actually in for a fight. That's a great thing because the end of the fight's already written. We know who won. And number three, God's goodness and future for our church is so good, it's unimaginable. The reason that he sends, that God tells them uh, to send spies into the promised land is that they can't wrap their minds around how good the promised land is. They actually have no ability to comprehend how good it is. They have to bring back just a taste of it. And when you look at what God wants to do through your ministry, through your life, through the gospel coming through you and growing through you, both individually and in this church, it is so good that I'm telling you right now, the best you're going to get is a taste of it, a glimpse of it, just a just a bit of it, enough to give you enough faith to move forward to claim that promise. Not the whole picture, not the whole thing. God's goodness and future for the church is so good, it's unimaginable. Now, we're going to fast forward 40 years, jump forward a full book all the way into Joshua and uh, get to chapter three. And when we get to chapter three of Joshua, we've got full circle, 
four decades later, we've got the whole congregation now of Israelites standing back on the bank of the Jordan again. They've sent some spies in to look at the land again. The spies have come back and they're ready to cross the river. This is where I believe our church is today. And I want to walk you through that story starting in verse 10. It says this, and Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he is without fail, will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of sites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel. That's really a key line there. 12 men from the tribes of Israel. From each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. I find it ironic that God had them send 12 spies, one representing each tribe in 40 years earlier to look at the land. And now when it's time to cross the Jordan River, he says, really, essentially the same thing. Pick one man from each tribe who's gonna stand in front of the congregation and it will not be until all 12 of them have their feet in the water that we're going across. Two out of 10 ain't gonna cut it or two out of 12 ain't gonna cut it. All of them are gonna have to be in the river. Every one of them is gonna have to carry the ark in. This time he says this, when their feet touch the water, I'll make a way. When you show me that all 12 of you are ready to be dependent on me for the way across, to go see the promises of God, then I'll make a way. Then the way will become clear. So go get your feet wet. Go get your feet wet. Now, in that 40 years, we notice there are more tribes have shown up. The enemy's grown. Heaven stayed the same. It actually looks more daunting than it did 40 years earlier. And they come at harvest time. So the water's actually overflowing. So it's a raging river. There's no way across the river. This is not a trickle. This is not a creek. This is if you go in, you're going to get swept away. And he's like, cool, get in the water. How are we going to get across? I didn't ask you to ask how. I said, get in the water. just interesting side note. I read all the way through both of these stories and the, and the preface and after I read, I read it all. Do you know how much, of the, how much of the battle plan to conquer the enemy did God give them 40 years earlier? None. That's, that was a trick question. Zero. He just said, go in. So now we're 40 years later. How much of the battle plan has he given them about how they're going to conquer all these enemies? None. Trick question. Still have no idea. You know why? They weren't ready for the battle plan. They were barely ready to get their feet wet. If God had told them, I want you to cross the river, and then we get to Jericho, that mighty walled city with the giants who are trained in military, here's what we're going to do. You're going to get a band. Some drums, some really loud drums, and some horns, and you're going to march around in a circle. Like, they'd be like, you're crazy. They'd probably have gone back to Egypt again. Their faith wasn't ready to even see God's battle plan yet. They had just made it far enough, like you and I, to get their feet wet and let God handle the rest. We don't know every plan in our church of how God is going to work that out. Here's what we know. He's calling us to get our feet wet. Here's another interesting note. They go to Jericho. They mar- I don't know if you guys know this story. Did anyone not watch VeggieTales as a kid? <clears throat> no? Okay. They march around the city. It falls down. That was, that's the battle plan, Right? Can you imagine 10 years later, they're not listening to God anymore. They're not really like praying and asking for guidance and seeking the work of the spirit and following obedience where God goes. And instead, they're just like, oh, we don't need God. We know how to bring down walled cities. We just got to get the band back together. That would have gone really well, right? If we, uh, yeah, we don't need God anymore. We just know we have to have horns and drums. And like, they go up to the walled city and they, they, they play their instruments and nothing. Like, do you realize how you and I, when, when we begin to ignore the work of the Holy Spirit and the pursuit of God and think that we have this formula of ministry that's gonna work, and if we just recreate that, God's gonna do what we said because we have a formula that makes God work like we want, like we have a genie in the bottle? It looks foolish. It looks silly. 
That's why there's never anything in the Bible that separates us from this dependency on God where we have to pursue him, we have to be sensitive to where he moves, we have to listen to him, we have to humble ourselves and submit to where he guides us, even when it looks crazy, because when you think you've got God figured out, man, it's dangerous. It's really dangerous, and we catch ourselves doing this all the time. I got God figured out. I just got to do A, B, and C, and he's going to do what I want him to. Man, he ain't your genie. He ain't your homeboy. There's a reason that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. How do we structure ministries to, to meet the needs of our community, of our, of our neighbors, of our family? How do, we, how do we reach the world? Look, there's some basic tenets that we're going to walk through about what it looks like for God's church to pursue his mission on earth. But the specific methodology has changed century after century and decade after decade and church after church has continued to change. And it really comes down to this. The formula is humble yourself, consecrate yourself, pursue God, and he will show you. And it looks different all the time. All the time. Before uh, we created this church, which is a merger of two other churches, before we did that, I met with Elder Don Mansickle. We were sitting around at lunch one day, and we had actually had both watched the same uh, story that Matt Chandler had, was telling about how he got hired at the Village Church in Texas. And he was like 27 or 28 years old, and the church elders there at the Village Church were pursuing him, and they, they just through prayer thought, this is the guy, this is the guy that's supposed to lead our church. And he didn't feel that way. He was like, no way, they're too old, they're too conservative, right? They got all these old mechanisms. And so he kept pushing him off. And finally, they, they got him in a meeting, and they're like, listen, you're the guy. We know the Lord wants you to lead this church. And he says, no, I'm not the guy. If you hire me, I'm going to change everything here. You're going to hate it. And the oldest elder in the group, who's over 80 years old, looked at him and said, Matt, if the gospel is being preached and men are being saved, change anything you want. Woo! That's what I'm talking about. That is thinking like a soldier where the end goal is reaching people for Christ and I don't, care what you, I don't care what you change. I don't care how uncomfortable it gets. I don't care how the obstacles look and how overwhelming this thing might be. If men are being saved, the gospel being preached, change anything you want. A lesson for us in this story, there are two that I want you to write down about Joshua chapter three in this season of our church. The first is this. We don't need to know all of the details about how God will do great things in our church. We need to know the direction to walk, the river to cross, and the land to take. We need to know the direction to walk, the river to cross, and the land to take. We're not going to know every detail about each of the ministries and how they're going to work yet because quite frankly a lot of them are going to come from you the body as you seek the Lord and he speaks to you and guides you and you begin to realize that God is at work in an area of our community or of our church or of this town or of global missions and we find out from you that God is moving in that area and we get behind you and we go to war. Let me give you an example of the difference. Two stories, vastly different. Uh, years ago, I had someone come to me and tell me, Daniel, you're never going to reach young men for Christ unless you take them in the mountains and you shoot guns with them. Now, listen, I love shooting guns and I own many. Uh, so I could carnally go, yeah, that's it. That's the formula. That's how God works. It's the only way. The problem with that is, that's not how God works. God works when you seek him and you humble yourself and you're obedient. It may look like that. It may not look like that. Let me tell you how it does work. It's a very different ministry in a different context. Uh, there's somebody that through prayer and through the prompting of the Holy Spirit begin to have a great conviction that they're... they're there is a marginalized group in our town of ladies that work as adult dancers that are objectified. They're taken advantage of. They are the least of these. They're marginalized, and they want to do something. So they and one or two other people begin to just bake cupcakes for them once a month and take them to them and say, despite what your employer tells you, despite what your customers tell you, despite what other people say about you, God loves you, and he made you in his image. 
that ministry in our church has grown and grown and grown. We didn't have to advertise it. We didn't have to talk about it from the pulpit. We didn't have to put it in a bulletin. I didn't have to go recruit for it. Literally all that had to happen was someone had to be obedient to God and despite the obstacles being obedient to what he was prompt to be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit, begin finding a way to share the gospel with people that God had put on their heart and tell other people about it in the body of Christ and the ministry grew on its own. Didn't take guns in the, in the mountains. Didn't take a bulletin announcement. That's how ministry will work. Does that make sense? We won't know all of the details about what this battle plan looks like until we each individually and then corporately seek the Lord and begin to see where he's moving and at work. When you see God at work in your community, in your neighbor, in your coworker, it is an invitation where God is inviting you to participate in the work with him. That's why he's showing it to you. In your life now, one of the greatest threats to your effectiveness sharing the gospel is to get caught up in the grind of daily life where, where, where human pursuits just begin to dominate your thoughts and your time and your heart and your, your treasure. And, and next thing you know, 30 years have gone by and you didn't pick your head up because there was just too much going on. Learning to seek God and listen to the work of the Spirit, and he will show and reveal to you where he's working, invites you into it, and the church will go to work. We don't need to know all the details about how God will do great things in our church. We need to know the direction to walk, the river to cross, and the land to take. And number five, we've got to stop thinking like civilians. We've got to stop thinking like civilians 18 months ago, I wrote on my whiteboard in my office uh, during some prayer time, how do I equip soldiers for battle when they still think they're civilians? How do I equip soldiers for battle when they still think they're civilians? It's really difficult to train people for war when they think they're not in a war. Let me give you a couple examples of uh, where this mindset has really hurt the American church and our church individually. Over the course of the last year, there's been a, a lot of uh, areas where there's been conflict and, and hurt and, and need that we could meet. Over the course of the last year, I thought about this um, last week or two. Over, over the last year, I've had two people in the church come to me and say, put me in, coach. Where, where's the line weak? Where's the line failing? Where's the battle not going well? Who needs encouragement? Just you point the direction and I'm gonna go. Two, I have lost count of the number of people that have come to me to tell me about ministries that I should start that would make them feel comfortable. That's a civilian mindset. Go architect something for me because I'll like it. A soldier's mindset is, where's it failing? Where's the enemy breaking through? Who's in need? Who's hurting? Where can I jump in? There's work to be done. We, we've largely been a field hospital for a while where we've been nursing wounds, real wounds, not, not imaginary wounds, difficult times. But at some point, you gotta get out of the field hospital, you gotta get back in the trenches with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you gotta go to war. And there's a war, there's a battle. It, except what God is arming us with is not, the, not swords, we're not gonna go stab anybody with a spear, he's arming us with meekness, with gentleness, with love, with self-control, with submissiveness, with bearing with one another's burdens, with long-suffering, and he's arming us with those things because they look so vastly different than the dark culture that is around us, so that when you pierce into that darkness, there is a light that is Christ shining through you that is unignorable. People are just like, what is happening there? You're going to war. We're not, we're not huddling up and, and getting in a bubble and, and hoping Jesus comes back soon. We're going into the dark culture with the message of truth so that we can love on people. It's the gospel. It's our calling. We gotta think like soldiers and not civilians. Our goal in 2022, it's my goal for every single one of you, is, is that we will cultivate in our church this gospel culture by becoming genuine, Gentle, generous soldiers for Christ. Genuine, gentle, generous soldiers for Christ. That we will see a need and run toward it with our own energy, our own resources, 
literally wearing our heart on our sleeve. You're going to get burned. You're going to get hurt. You're going to bear burdens. You're going to take wounds. And you're going to have your brothers and sisters in Christ who've learned how to love you in this church to encourage you and lift you up as you do battle. Now, practical applications for the church, but before the church, if uh, you're participating, listening to this online, or you're here today, and you don't actually know if you even buy into any of this, you're not, you're not certain that you've, that Christ is really in charge of your life, if that's something you've, you've never done, but there's something intoxicating about the way that God keeps wooing you and pulling you back into these spiritual conversations over and over again. I'm not even sure why, especially not the guy with the weird shoes. That is God saving you. God is bringing you to the river through no power or effort of your own. You have been in a wilderness, which is, according to the Bible, a life dead in the flesh because of your sin. Every one of us has an unquenchable thirst that we can't seem to satiate by worldly things because we were created and built to have a relationship with God. We were separated by sin and it is only through the saving work of Jesus Christ that we have any opportunity to have real peace, to have real contentment, to have a relationship with God. That is, in this story, the promised land and the river between us is impassable by you and by no human means will you ever make it across and yet God will save you. He will bring you to the river. You need merely put your feet in the water and he will make a way. The Bible would say if you will declare with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you'll be saved. He will start a reclamation project in your heart. He will start a transformation in you. He will fill you with his peace and his spirit and he'll begin to change you. And that promise is available to you like it was available to the Israelites. You need merely faith, just like they needed. You put your feet in the water and he makes a way. If you don't know Jesus Christ is your savior, if you believe that's something that's happening now, that God is saving you, I wanna to talk to you after the service and explain what some next steps will look like as you put your faith in Christ. For the church, for those of you that have faith in Christ already and are looking at what does 2022 look like for us as a body? Some very simple things, very simple rivers to cross and lands to take. The first is this, you hear us say this all the time, if you're not in a community group, you need to get in a community group. I read every single survey response from our church survey. There are a lot of you still not in community groups. This life was not one intended to do like Rambo all by yourself. We need our brothers and sisters close to us. You need a few. You need people that know the stuff that you tuck in the closet when guests come over to pretend like everything's not a mess, but it's really a mess. You just put it in the closet. You need people who know what's in the closet. You need people that can call you on your stuff. You need people that will encourage you when you're down. You need people that will love you all the time. You've got to find your few. And listen, there's not a perfect way to do this. What we try to do is create an environment for you to find that. And here's how that environment works. You get in a group and you give it a shot and you give it time. It won't happen automatically. It generally doesn't happen very fast. Most of the time, it's not like that movie Step Brothers where we look at each other and go, oh, do we just become best friends? Is that a bad reference? Most of the time it takes time. You don't microwave those relationships. Most of the time they're like crockpots. It's low heat, long periods of time that slowly soften and build relationships with one another. But in that, if you'll get genuine, if you'll get accountable, if you'll get vulnerable, then you, you'll really begin to build some Christ-centered relationships that will help you grow. And that's the start, because if you don't have that, you're not gonna do the rest of it very well. Get in a group. Secondly, find a place to serve. Serving is indispensable. It is an inseparable part of being part of the body of Christ. When, when, when the analogy is used, the illustration is used in the Bible that we are part of the body of Christ, it talks about every body part is critical. You don't get to look at your liver and be like, I don't really need you. Trust me, you need a liver. Every one of you has a spiritual gift that was given to you according to the Bible for the edification and building up of the saints. The work of ministry is done by the people in the pews. Pastors equip the saints for works of service. You have gifts that God gave you at the moment of salvation via the Holy Spirit so that you could use them for the kingdom purposes, for the edification of other Christians. Don't let them lay idle. Put them to work. Let me just, let me just lay it out for you. Um, we have a distinctive about pouring into the next generation. It's one of our three distinctives as a church. And yet, and yet, uh, a week ago, I had nine volunteers for kids ministry out of a church of 600 people. 
Now, here's what that tells me, right? Because I have no list of suggestions about other ministries we should start, but I have nine volunteers for the ministry that represents one of our distinctives, one of the core things that we say our church is entirely about. So right now, in practice, we're hypocrites because we say one thing, but we do another. We have a gap to close there. Well, we have to run into the spaces where we find weakness in the line and find ways to serve. Where can you use your gift? Where can God find a way to use your spiritual gifts for the edification of the body? to make a kingdom impact. Get in a group, find a place to serve. Let me give you uh, another opportunity, practically. Uh, there were many people in our church survey that mentioned something around a men's, women's, a men's ministry or a women's ministry. Now, the desire for that is, in my experience, one of two things. It's either a desire to have just community with men and a community with women, which if so, I want you to go see Nathan Mayer and I'll give you his email address. He will help you start a group for men or start a group for women or plug you into one, okay? So if that is your desire and that is why that was in the survey, we have something for you. But, but a second desire that I see a lot of times when someone says men's ministry or women's ministry is what they're really trying to articulate is, man, I wanna pour into younger men or I wanna pour into younger women and I don't know a mechanism to do that. Well, starting in January 23rd on Sunday nights, we're gonna be doing what is essentially a marriage class where we're looking at the scriptural, um, the, the scriptural basis for marriage and relationships, except we're gonna do it men in one building, women in another building, and we're gonna go through a book in each of these two classes that really study scripture to look at that. And you have an opportunity, men, and you have an opportunity, women, to go to that class in order to plug into uh, men and women of other generations so that you can love them, pray for them, lead them, teach them, encourage them. And so if you wrote that in the survey, Man, have I got something for you. That's January 23rd. You can sign up for that on our website right now and you can see the lead teachers, Pastor Jonathan for the men and Fran Thompson for the women. Lastly, get in a group, find a place to serve. Lastly, commit to seeking God and listening to where he is leading. Commit to seeking God and listening to where he is leading with all of your resources, with your money, with your energy, with your time, with your heart. Commit to listening to God and follow where he's leading. And just before the passage we read in Joshua 3, verse five said this, when Joshua was getting the people prepared to cross the river, he said this, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, the Lord will do wonders among you. Would you ask yourself that? Would you ask that of God in prayer as we pray over our church for 2022 in just a moment? Will you ask him to consecrate you, to set you apart to, to, to put in you a drive and a passion to pursue him and to serve him and to see the church built up, you consecrate yourself. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders. That translated from Hebrew, that wonders means astonishing work, amazing work, unfathomable work, things that you can't yet imagine God will do among you through his church and through you as Christ shines through you in 2022 and beyond. Jesus would say, you're gonna do even more, even greater things than I've done. And he was really speaking to how his Holy Spirit would come and in us, empower us to do things that we would never be able to do through human competency. Astounding, amazing, unbelievable things, church. I believe that's what is in our future as we together, not individually and not in the minority, but together are willing to put our feet in the water and watch God make a way. Let me pray for you. Father God, Thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts and in our church, God. I thank you for requiring faith of us before you show us the way. We, we don't, God, have enough faith to see the whole picture. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son, God. Thank you for the work that you will do individually in each of the members of this church as we continue to be pierced and transformed by your scripture and by the gospel, God. Help us to love one another and love this broken world, God and be a light in the dark. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna break for you. Starting point's gonna be right over here in our Next Steps room right now after service. Uh, if you have questions of our elders, there'll be a couple of us up here. And on your way out, there are some handbooks. It's our first attempt at putting together a guide for all of the various things that are going on in the life of our church. I'm sure we got some stuff wrong and we'll be another revision soon. We love you and we'll see you next week.